You are now listening to the March 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character and His nature, by discovering His attributes. everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program series, The Attributes of God. Today, we will be studying God's attribute of faithfulness. First, let's look at the definition of faithful from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It defines faithful as having or showing true and constant support or loyalty, deserving trust, keeping your promises. Faithful appears 75 times in 72 verses of the New American Standard Version of the Bible. So let us begin with Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and after he spoke to them about the Ten Commandments, about what life will be like when they reach the Promised Land, and to avoid any connection with those who are still there, he tells them that they are a holy people, that God loves them and has kept the oath he swore to their forefathers. Then Moses says in verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Throughout the Old Testament, God is always on the lookout for faithful people that will follow him and his commands, such as Psalm 31, verse 23, where David exclaims, O love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. And also in Psalm 101, verse 6, My eyes shall look upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. In the New Testament, Jesus had a few things to say about being faithful to God and what he has given you, and spoke the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, saying to the two slaves in verses 21 and 23, who had increased the use of their talents, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Paul, too, had a lot to say in his letters to the churches about the faithfulness of God and being faithful to God. For example, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about the faithfulness of God in chapter 10, verse 13, where he writes, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In Ephesians and Colossians, Paul writes about Christians being faithful to God, such as in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, where he starts his letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, 
by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. But to the Thessalonians in both letters, Paul goes back and discusses the faithfulness of God again, as in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, where he writes, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Even in the book of Revelation, the word faithful is mentioned eight times. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, John writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. God is faithful. He is faithful to his words and his promises, and we in turn should be faithful to God with our praise, worship, and doing what he would have us to do for him and his kingdom. In closing, I would like you to reflect on how God has shown his faithfulness to you throughout your life, even in your failures. Then think about how you have been faithful to God. Until next time, God bless you, and goodbye.
sing, I will rest. I will rest in your promises, my confidence is your faithfulness. I will rest, I will rest in your promises, my confidence is your faithfulness. And I will. Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delf and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delf and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we had a great conversation and we asked three questions. Number one, is trust within our human nature? Two, how much time does it take to trust someone? And number three, we talked about accountability. How does accountability work after the trust has been broken? And on today's podcast, we're going to discuss where it is that you lose trust. Polly's going to share a childhood story of a time where trust was broken. And then we want to ask the question, how do you recover from these painful events or or people or circumstances that have broken your trust. All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delf, are authors of this book. And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk.
So in the book, chapter 13, guys, you have a chapter called In God We Trust. But it's not a period, it's a question mark. So it's (laughs) In God We Trust. And I love the quote here. God is getting you ready for what he has ready for you. Really? You would kind of look at that and go, do we, we say we believe in God and we say we believe that we trust in God, but do we really? And uh, we've all got lots of stories, I'm sure that we could share in that. Paula, you've got one specifically to share with us? Yeah, I think a lot of women and girls can relate to this kind of a story because it it seems to be pretty universal in a lot of ways. Although I was very privileged to grow up in a very loving and secure home. Uh, My my family was Jewish. I lived in a small town in southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, Our community, our Jewish community, owned a beautiful piece of property that was called the Jewish Community Center. There were tennis courts, beautiful grounds. We had a swimming pool and a bowling alley downstairs. It was an old uh, cold baron's home and so a gorgeous old building. And uh, we used to play there. There were activities every weekend, arts and crafts and games and fun times. So our parents hosted lots of parties and activities there. And when I was about eight years old, there was a caretaker who lived on, on the grounds, and um, he would invite me to come and sit on his lap. And sometimes he would take my hand and just sort of put it on his lap. And, um, and then one day, he invited me to go up to the third floor of the building with him where he proceeded to molest me basically. And, uh, and he said, as so many child molesters do to the, their victims, um, this is our secret, don't tell anybody. And it wasn't very long after that that my mother said, you know, this guy has been peeping in through the windows of the girls' locker room, and people have been concerned about him. He's never done anything to you, has he? And I, I said, no. And uh, because I didn't want to let my mother down, I didn't want to let her know that, that this guy had done anything to me. And all of a sudden, I felt shame and I, embarrassment in front of my mother. And I couldn't, I couldn't tell my mother about things. And it sort of laid a groundwork for not talking to my mother about sexual issues. And it, just a lot of embarrassment. And that eventually led to promiscuity. As a, as a young woman, I just got into a lot of sexual activity that I shouldn't have when I was in college. And I got to the place where I felt a lot of shame and guilt about these things because I had grown up in a very religious Jewish family. I knew what the Word of God said, what the law said, and I felt guilty for breaking God's law. And around this point in my life, when I was about 22 years old, I had graduated from high school, I I met a woman named B.G. Isabel. B.G. were her initials, and uh, we called her Beej. 
she loved the Lord. And Beach just had a quality about her life that I desired so much. And she had not grown up in any kind of a religious background, but she was very interested in my Jewish background. And we would talk about the Bible, we would talk about God, and I could see that I was supposed to know God because I knew all of this stuff about God. I knew how to pray to God in Hebrew. <laughs> but Beej loved the Lord, and she knew that he loved her. And it made me want to know God the way that she did. And around that point in my life, I also met some guys uh, who were Christian and who started sharing with me Old Testament scriptures, especially Isaiah 53, that is out of the Old Testament. And here the God of the Old Testament that I knew was saying, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I knew that he was talking about Jesus. So one night as I was driving in my car, I started to pray and I said, God, you know, I'm Jewish. I don't want to not be Jewish. But if Jesus really is the Messiah, and if this is really what you want for me, then I want it to. I, re- I don't want my mother to be mad at me. I knew she <laughs> was going to be mad at me. Your Jewish but, mother. <laughs> but I also knew that when I came to the end of my life, I was going to stand before the throne of God And uh, my mother wasn't going to be standing there with me. And I ultimately knew this just came down to a decision that I needed to make one-on-one between me and God. And, And so I said, if Jesus is really the Messiah and this is what you want for me, then I want it too. I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. So wouldn't you say, Polly, that no matter what a woman or person has gone through, that certainly the love and forgiveness and grace of God changed your life tremendously. Maybe you could just say one or two of the things. I mean, it it radically changed the course of your future. Absolutely, without a doubt. I felt cleansed, whole, new, washed clean. My first thought was, this must be peace of mind. I, I knew without a doubt that God was giving me a fresh start. I had gotten to the point where I wanted to rip up my life and start all over again, and I knew I couldn't do that, but God himself came in and washed me clean and gave me a fresh start. So one of the things that we talk about in chapter 13 is the fact that forgiveness makes the future possible, and I'm so thankful that God brought you into my life even before you were a believer we went to the same college together we were both gymnasts we were both jewish but just in different totally different circles and because god forgave you and gave you a new life as we met uh, we got reacquainted at uh, a penn state gymnastic uh, meet that we did uh, our team did the worst they have done in four years of me being there or three years of being being there. And I did the worst of my life, but I saw this smiling face that I had never seen at Springfield. And even before you said a word, I said, you did become 
a believer. And I remember as we were trying to make our commitment, trying to figure out, are we going to get married or not? I remember having to ask, Lord, I know where she's been, but I know what you've done. And, and it was my trust in the Lord and who he says he is that could trust you with, even though spiritually you said you felt like a virgin, <laughs> uh, there are still things in our soul that need to be worked out. And we spent probably 10 years of our marriage trying to get those things worked out. And fortunately, 43 years later, we're still working them out. <laughs> but forgiveness makes the, the future possible. And, and to me, your story is the example of God making a whole different future. I mean, you were a depressed, dope-smoking, hurting young lady, and God turned you into a loving, not cursing, not smoking dope person that, well, that, that had a new life, and, uh, and the joy of it was so evident I could see it on your face without even talking to there you. There were a couple of major issues that, that I would deal with in terms of um, just habits and patterns in my life at that point. I was smoking a pack and a half of cigarettes a day. And uh, because I was coaching and teaching at a gymnastic center, um, m my boss wanted me to quit smoking. And he had offered at one point to pay me <laughs> whatever, $20 if I would quit smoking. and um, Which was a lot back in the 70s. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it seemed like a lot of money. But, I, but I, I just couldn't do it. And here Jesus came into my life. The Holy Spirit filled me. And I didn't even think about having a cigarette. And the next day I went out to lunch with my sister and – and she offered me a cigarette, and I, and I said, well, sure, and I, I took a drag off the cigarette and just went, ugh, yuck, I just can't do this anymore, and I put it out, and I never touched cigarettes again, and it's not that come to the Lord and you'll quit <laughs> smoking, but God filled me with something better. Then that same day, one of my friends offered me a joint, and I didn't, I said, I don't need to do that anymore. I'm <coughs> so full of the joy of the Lord. That thing that was inside of me that was nagging at me, driving me, trying to fill something up that was missing in my life, it's full now. It's full of the Holy Spirit. It's full of Jesus. I, I don't have any need to do drugs. And and my language completely changed. I, I know it's kind of hard to imagine, but I did swear like a sailor back then. You know, the F word was like punctuated every sentence at least three or four times. It was, it's a very your mother useful, wouldn't approve of it's that a very either, would she? That's okay. She, she's flossing. <laughs> she's okay. flossing over there. Okay. The F word. <laughs> but the Lord just convicted me that that language was not pleasing to him, and he just took it away. Mm -hmm. And, well, he convicted me of it and made me aware that this was not mm -hmm. the way that I should speak anymore. So the change came through illumination, didn't it? You got, ah. Yes. You know, when yeah. he spoke to you. And the power, mm -hmm. the power mm -hmm. was there yes. to change in the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. 
that, even though you didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was. Right. No, that's that, right. that is that's what a is wonderful so thing about it, exciting <laughs> is that God, in both our lives, there was radical change. We were two different kinds of people, but um, God did things in our lives, which we can't really explain. Right. I didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was, but he did give me <laughs> the power to change. And so we just, uh, you know, as we're talking with you out there, the audience, we just want you to know that God's power is able to do far exceedingly beyond all we ask, think, or even imagine. And that the trust that Paulie put in the God of the universe who uh, has the power to actually change habits, patterns, hang-ups, shame-filled experiences, and give freedom and give forgiveness is able to do the same for you. And, you know, if you want to know him, all you need to do is ask, God, come into my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Uh, Let him know I, I want forgiveness for my sins. And let his blood and and his grace cover you, that you could be a child of God. And, you know, we feel sometimes like faith, you know, faith in God. We're talking here in this chapter, in God we trust, not, not in our bod we trust, okay? <laughs> and really that's kind of the choice here is our, it's our assumption. Are we, are we going to trust in ourselves, in our own heart, in our assessment of things? What should have happened, what shouldn't have happened, what could have happened, all we, the woody should have could is we can do that forever. And that's really us just trusting ourselves. God says, listen, if you'll trust me, I'll take care of it. I mean, just think of, think of Noah. Sometimes faith will make you look stupid until it starts to rain. Mm. And another one, I got another Noah one. Noah was the wisest man that ever lived because he floated his stock when the rest of the world was going into liquidation. <laughs> so it, it's okay. And the question to me, really, the, it's an issue of faith is not so much whether we believe in God, but whether we believe the God we believe in. Mm. Does that make sense? In other words, it's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to believe God. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to encourage all of you out there is, listen, I know it's tough, I, uh, you know, but, but listen, don't go back. You're not going that way. Mm-hmm. God's the God of the future, too. He mm-hmm. knows of your past. That's no big deal to him. He knew that was going to happen. What he's more concerned about is what he has for you. God's getting you ready for what he has ready for you, as Dustin said at the very beginning there. Mm. So um, whether we – it's one thing to believe in God, another thing to, uh, how do you say, believe God. Mm. And so if you're out there, maybe you're a Christian or maybe you're not a Christian. Polly wasn't even a Christian, and God just showed up, bang, right in the mm. middle of her – other you're Christians, you're saying, when am I going to change? I'm dealing with this issue right now. Hmm. Listen, doesn't matter which ca- of those categories you're in. There's only one answer that, that I can really see that's going to get you to the end that you want. God doesn't want anything from you. He has things for you. And to get you those things for you, um, it's trusting the Lord and leaning not on, on your on your own understanding. I know it's tough out there. I know we've had all these shaping events. We've talked about it. Mm-hmm. They've created lingering influence. We've had September 11th happen in our lives. Mm-hmm. But but my encouragement is my old saying, don't look back. You're not going that way. Mm-hmm. Um, look to the future and let God redeem the past. He'll just he'll take all that stuff 
and use it as building blocks, you know, of your testimony and just take you right into the uh, future with it. So in this whole issue of learning how to trust all over again, you know, it's I would encourage you, first of all, to believe in God, because really, you'll never really believe in other people the way God would want to until you learn how to believe in God. God's got it under control. God can work in you. God can work in them. And somehow that will just creates more space for us uh, to work with others and to uh, uh, begin to keep our expectations reasonable in others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not looking for things to judge but for things to correct not being the accuser of the brethren uh, but being intercessor you have a you know Jesus that story you can either be accuser or you can be an intercessor and that you, gives you a whole new perspective you you make such a good point about letting go of the past you know the past even though it's really hurtful even though we um we have a lot of pain in it. We know what it holds. It holds all of this pain and anguish and hurt, but it's familiar to us. And in, But in order to move into what God has for us, we have to let go of, of what we know and move in faith into the unknown, which is trusting in God for his very best, even though... <laughs> it it involves the death of something familiar to us. And I think about how uh, there's a, a camp up in the mountains near Phoenix where they do family camps. It has a, this ropes course. And you get to the very end mm-hmm. of the ropes course and you stand on a platform and you're all strapped in with a harness and clipped to a th- to a rope and a cable and people are holding on to the other end, but you have to jump off of that platform. And for me, as a former gymnast, it's a huge thrill. It's a rush. (laughs) But I've seen... Because you know the harness is going to catch you. (laughs) But I've seen women sit on that platform shaking and crying Mm. and afraid to make the jump even though they're clipped in and they're strong men on the other side holding them they're not going to get hurt but they're frozen but what's interesting is you had the experience in your past you could draw from that experience that hey i know there's a harness that's gonna catch me and i bet the first time you tried to do a round-off back handspring back flip with a harness on. <laughs> you were scared stiff. And what's interesting is God will do both. He will force us, like Humpty Dumpty got pushed off the wall. Um, he will, through dire circumstances and, and difficulties, he will cause us to be in so much pain that we, in fact, will jump. And there are other times where we, you don't even, I think, unconsciously, you had that experience in your past and were able to jump in total freedom because you had total confidence that the harness and the the guy would hold the rope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe you're out there and you're feeling like this. I've blown my life, what these Mm -hmm. guys are talking about. You know, I've got good news for you. If you think you've blown God's plan for your life, God has news for you. 
you're not that powerful. That's right. And That's you're not that right. powerful. You know, everybody, it's the old story of the guy who's sitting there in the, the Nikes, you know. i got to share this with you here real quick if I can find it here. I like this story. Here you go. Maybe this is you. Uh, what about that awkward moment when you're wearing Nikes and you can't do it? God says you can do it. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways, knowledge him, and he will guide your path. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delph at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the judgment seat, based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Well, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul has uh, used the metaphor of the Olympic races, the Corinthian races, to talk about the Christian life. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, and we'll read uh, parts of 9 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Apostle loves sports, apparently, and a lot of you can identify with him that way. So I'm going to start with verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, the end of verse 25, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul loved the races. Of all the sports, it appears he likes the races the best. And he talks about it more than one time in his letters. Another time I'm thinking about that he talks about the races is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Why don't you go there to the right? Do you mind looking at different verses today? Is that okay with you guys? So let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know, the thing about the Bible is the more you use it, the more you know it. And so uh, if you're not exactly sure where things are in your Bible, there is somebody next to you that will help you out, unless they don't know where that place is either. And I would say it's page 1156 in my Bible. I guess that won't work. But it's okay. Don't feel bad. It's, we're going to do this together. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Paul says the end of his life, he was not going to die a natural death. He was going to be executed in a terrible way. So Paul is looking at his life. He sees it as a sacrifice that he's pouring out to the Lord. And in verse 7, how about reading this with me? And I don't care the translation you have Loud and clear, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. See how he uses that analogy of the, the race again. He says, I have finished my race. He says, I am soon, I'm going to be running through that tape, and it's going to be done. I'll finish my race. What happened at the end of a race? We haven't talked about that. At the end of their race, every athlete stepped up to what was called the bima, or the judgment seat, to hear what the judges had to say. 
A bima is simply a raised platform. I'm standing on a bima, actually. And the judges would watch the races. They would make their decisions from what they saw up there. In fact, in the Greek and Roman world, a bima was a place where judges would say, hey, today, it's the same way, isn't it? They would watch to see how the athletes ran. Now, if you broke the rules and they saw that, you would immediately be disqualified. And to be disqualified was both humiliating and costly. Paul said, he says, so I want to discipline my body lest I, after having preached to others, should be disqualified. It was a technical term that talked about somebody who cheated. And the judges said, you're out, you're disqualified. It brought a lot of shame because you had been running, well, for your own honor. You've been running for the honor of your family, your city, and your God, whatever God you worshiped. So to be disqualified brought shame on them all. Not only did it bring shame, it brought cost. Because part of the penalty for being disqualified was you had to pay for a statue of Zeus. That statue would be placed at the entrance of the sports center so that everyone who came in, especially every contestant, would see this is what happens to people who cheat. That's kind of crazy. I want you to listen very carefully. The Bible tells us that at the end of our race, we will all stand before a bima as well. It's not going to be a place where, you know, Olympic judges show us numbers, you know. It's going to be a place called the judgment seat of Christ, the bima seat of Christ. Would you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Apostle Paul is talking about the hope of heaven, especially in light of going through terrible things. And he says, the worst things we experience in this world are momentary and light compared to what is coming eternally. And I think that's kind of hard to hear sometimes. He doesn't say they are insignificant, but he says they, in the light of eternity, are not to be compared with what you'll have in heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 6. So we are all weeds of good courage. We know that while we are at home in this body, that's the tent we're living in, this earth suit, we are away from the Lord. We're not in heaven, right? For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body, that would mean to what? Die, and be at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. I just want to clarify, it's a teacher in me, okay? When you die, you leave your body. When you die, you separate from your body and you go immediately, your spirit, you, your soul, you go to be with the Lord, you'll be conscious, we'll know him, You'll be known by others in heaven, but you don't have a body, which is so weird, right? Paul says it's like being unclothed, you know? God gives us heavenly robes, I guess, you know, to wear until we get new bodies. 
So we're waiting for a new body in heaven. We separate. When you die, you separate from earth. You separate from your body. The Greek word thanatos, which is the word for death, really simply means to separate. So that's what happens when we die. So we're away from the body, and we go to be at home with the Lord. So that's what he's saying here. He's saying, yes, we are of good courage, verse 8. We'd rather be away from the body. That is, I'd rather be in heaven with the Lord. But he says, whether we are at home or away, we're going to make it our aim to please him. Our goal on earth is to please God. Verse 10, this is where we're headed. So read it out loud with me. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear before judgment seat is the word bima, the bima of Christ. We're going to give account for how we've lived this life, how we've lived here in this body. Every single Christian is going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. That bema, just like those athletes came and stood before the judge, and the judge would tell them, this is what we saw, and they either got a word or they didn't. Some, sadly, were disqualified. That's going to happen to every single one of us. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Will you look at Romans 14? Go to the left a little bit more and look at Romans chapter 14. The Apostle Paul talks about this again. You know... Growing up, I never heard about this. I heard of Judgment Day, but Judgment Day was, is all about the day that unbelievers receive their ultimate condemnation. You know, they are sent away and they're eternally separated from God in hell. That was Judgment Day. That's all I heard about growing up. I never heard about the Judgment Seat of Christ, the Bema Seat of Christ. Never did. Romans chapter 14, look at verse end of verse 10. You get ready at the end of 10. Paul says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat, the bema of God. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Light goes on. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, and it's called the judgment seat of God, which means Jesus is what? God. Is that cool? Write that one down. That dawned on me last night, and I thought, this is so cool. Note to self. The judgment seat of Christ is a place where Christians will have their works judged by the Lord. It has nothing to do with our sins, because Jesus has paid for them and they can no more be held against us. Have you heard that? Get on the page with me. This has nothing to do with sin. This is not a judgment of your works to determine your salvation. This is a judgment of your works to determine your reward. And eternal life is not a reward, right? It's a what? Gift. It's a gift of God, not a works list, anyone should boast. 
So you're in this race because you're saved. And at the end of your race, you're going to stand before the Bema, before the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus wants to give you reward. He wants to award you the winner's crown. Nothing that you've ever done for Jesus will be forgotten. Things that you have done years ago for the Lord or supported years ago, he has not forgotten. Do you have people ever come up to you, maybe you haven't seen him for a while, and they say, I remember when you, and it was something you did for them. You remember that? And you hate to say you don't, but maybe you don't. And you're thinking, I just want you to, to think that God never has that, oh, I didn't remember that. God remembers everything you've done for him. You hear me? He's not forgotten anything. Hebrews chapter six, verse 10 says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown for him and for others. Every single thing you've done to please Jesus is remembered and you'll be rewarded for. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus clearly taught in his sermons, in his stories, his parables. He taught that all his servants are someday going to stand before him to give an account of their lives. In Revelation 22, verse 12, I mean, some of the final things the Bible has to say. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Jesus in Matthew 16 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus said that a time is coming when he will settle accounts. And in Luke 16, he says, the day is coming when he's going to call his servants together and he's going to call those who have squandered his gifts. And he's going to say, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. All of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And for some people, it's not going to be a happy day. For some, it's going to be a day when you don't receive anything from Jesus or not what you could from Jesus because you haven't lived for the Lord. But the other side is, you live for the Lord and he hasn't forgotten a thing and he wants to reward you for that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul's saying, you know, don't make up your judgments about people or things too soon. Because there's a day coming that is going to reveal things that you don't know right now, you, you don't see right now. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, look at this. Therefore do not pronounce judgment for the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes or the motives of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Don't make judgments ahead of time. God is going to judge, and God alone knows, and he'll reward or won't. Paul was motivated to finish his race well and to persevere in his race because his goal was to please the Lord. And he knew that someday he was going to stand before the bema of Christ, and he wanted to hear good race. That's when he wanted to hear. 
He wanted to hear, well done, good job, my faithful servant. That's what he wants to hear. That's what I want to hear. How about you guys? I want to hear, good job, Mark. I've got to personalize this. And I was thinking of it like this. There are some people that are really important in my life. And to hear from them, you did an awesome job, means so much to me. It spurs me on to want to do it again. Do any of you have somebody like that in your life or somebody who's done that for you in your life? Right? It's like, I want to do that again. I want to hear that again from them. So I'm going to do my best. In fact, I'm going to do better, right? Well, move that out of that human relationship to your relationship with Jesus. I mean, what he thinks is even better. Now, I don't always hear him say, good job. In fact, probably what all of us deal with is we don't think we're doing good enough, right? Is that the way you feel? You know? But I'm telling you, Jesus is smiling at a lot of you a lot of the time because he's proud of you and what you're doing. Now, ultimately, I want to stand before him someday and him just smiling says, you know what? You ran your race. Yes, you persevered. Even when you had an injury, Father in heaven came alongside you and he helped you and now you're at the finish line. Well done. Remember, you don't win someone else's race. You're only running your own. And it doesn't matter what somebody else is doing. It's all about your race, you and Jesus. It's not a matter of how fast you run. It's a matter of persevering to the end. Is everybody with me? You hear that? Really encouraging. Paul was motivated to finish his race, to persevere, because he wanted to see that smile of Jesus when he stood before the Bema seat of Christ. He was motivated to get rewards. There is the thought, maybe somebody's thinking right now, well, that sounds kind of mercenary to me. You know, motivating people by rewards. I'm just serving Jesus out of love for him, not for rewards. I don't want any rewards. I completely understand you. I'm serving Jesus, and the people around you are because we love Jesus, right, gang? Yeah, Jesus says, okay, you love me, now serve me, and I'm going to reward you. Jesus challenges us to serve him to get reward. Okay, this isn't something that we've come up with. It's something Jesus challenges us to do throughout the New Testament. Nobody says more about getting rewards than Jesus. So Jesus is all about us stacking up, piling up reward in heaven. He's the one who urges us to live to get rewards from him. Would you look at Matthew chapter six, which of course would be to the left, Matthew chapter six, and look at verse 19. We often apply this to the matter of giving. I think it's more than that. I think it's real applicable to what we're talking about right now. Matthew 6, 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Verse 20, get this. But lay up for yourselves, what? Treasures in heaven. 
Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, lay up for yourselves, live in such a way that you are accruing treasure in heaven. There are different kinds of reward. There's a reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it, and it's quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany these things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. We serve Jesus because we love him, but Jesus says, I'll reward you for serving me. I will always remember it this way. When our kids were little, they would say, okay, Christmas is coming, for instance. They would say, Daddy, I want to get you a Christmas present. But they had no money. So they would ask for money from me to get me a Christmas present. Now, that's cute, but I made the money. I earned the living. I give them the money, they buy the present, they have their mom wrap it, right? And then they give it to me as if from themselves, and I receive it like my kid got it all himself and gives it to me, amen? Leslie has this little, little teddy bear. Got a little heart on it and says, I love you. And it was Danny's little teddy bear. He really liked it. We gave it to him, by the way. And one time, just out of love, Leslie found it on her pillow before she went to bed. And in his little boy handwriting, he says, for you, mom, I think it's what it says, love Daniel in his little kid handwriting. That so touched her. Of course, she's never got the other day. I said, do you want to maybe do something with this? Oh, no. Oh, no. Who bought the teddy bear? We did. Who gave it to him? We did. He gave it, and it's a cherished gift. You know where I'm headed with this. Everything we do for Jesus is because of what Jesus is doing in us. Amen? It's what he gives us. He gives us the love. He gives us the power. He saved us to begin with. So he says, I'll reward you for what you do for me. And we're going, well, it's all because of you that I could give you anything. And he says, exactly. I'll even wrap it for you. Just give it to me and I'll reward you. It's that awesome. Somebody say amen. And I'm going to remember that's how rewards in heaven work. I'm going to remember that. Because I give him that teddy bear, or I give him, you know, that whatever, that old spice. Nobody does that anymore, right? Thank God. But I give my Father in heaven, I give Jesus something, and it's all because of what he's done for me. And yet he says, I want to give it back to you. We serve Jesus because we love him. We serve him, and he says, I'm going to reward you. And Jesus wants us to take that very seriously. Just as serious as a runner who runs his race and knows he's going to stand before the bima. He says, I want you to be serious. He gives us heavenly incentives for earthly living. 
Someone has said it very well. If we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Think eternally. In Colossians 3, verse 23, the apostle says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Hey, work for God. He's got a reward for you. One of these stories, you know, after the preacher died and he went to heaven, funny thing about this story is no one can repudiate these stories because it's after somebody's died, right? So after preacher died and he went to heaven, he noticed that a New York cab driver had been given a higher place in heaven than he had. I don't understand, he complained to St. Peter. I devoted my entire life to my congregation. And St. Peter said, well, our policy is to reward results. Now, what happened, Reverend, whenever you gave a sermon, St. Peter asked? Well, the minister admitted that some of the congregation fell asleep. Exactly said St. Peter. And when the people rode in this man's taxi, they not only stayed awake, they prayed. You weren't as effective as you could have been, preacher. God wants us to be effective in our service for him. God wants us to be very intentional in what we do for him. Where am I going to make the biggest impact for eternity? I think about, I want to kick a dent into eternity. I want to make a difference. I'm going to tell you, you know, like when you give, we can't all go to the mission field. And it's not the will of God for us all to, right? Hello? Right. But we can all support. Even if it's a little bit, then that little bit goes out. And okay, let's say, crazy as this may seem, because according to God's economy, If you've sat and you've taken care of the camp, so to speak, and somebody goes out and they do battle and they bring back the spoils of war, you get a share of that because you were just taking care of home base and you're making it possible for them to go out in the first place. Following me? You have reward. Even though you're not there, you've supported the people that can be there. Man, you have great reward in heaven. A lot of us have no clue. When we give to our church, God's doing a lot of things that we can't. I'm not out there doing the homeless ministry. I can't. I think it's a wonderful thing. But I give my tithes and offerings, and I'm having a part in that, and I will have a piece of reward in that. You understand? I'm not at the man of ministry handing out food to those who who need food. I can't do that. It's not possible for me to do that, but I bring food. And so part of that reward, Leslie and I are going to have, you're going to have when you do that kind of stuff. Are you following the idea, the concept here? And it's that way with service, not just giving. Giving seems to be kind of concrete. We can think about it. 
you're teaching kids, you're welcoming people. Let's say the person you welcomed, you were the first person they saw. You know, people make a judgment in like three seconds about a person or a place, and you were that great impression. The Holy Spirit used you. They come in here, they get saved. Guess what? You get part of that reward in heaven. See, Jesus just wants to give reward. And if you don't get reward, it's not like you tried not to, but it's hard not to. Got to live for Christ. Think the more you invest in heaven and eternal things, the more you're going to enjoy heaven. That's my theory. The more you put into eternal things, the more eternal things will matter. And when you get to heaven, it's going to be awesome. Uh, That King Cyrus of Babylon was showing off the famous hanging gardens of Babylon, which I guess were just spectacular. They were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So he was showing them off to somebody, and uh, they were admiring them and just, oh, this is so beautiful. And uh, Cyrus said, well, you like them, but I have a lot more pleasure than you do because I've planted every single tree here, he supposedly said. You know, his enjoyment was even more because he planted. And the more we plant in eternal things, the more our enjoyment in heaven is going to be. You're going to have people come up to you and say, it's because of you I'm here. I remember some years ago, we purchased Jesus films to be shown in, in India, throughout all India. Well, regions of India, not the whole country. And those films before they wore out because they were back in the projector days and we would buy generators too so they could take them to these remote villages and play them. We figured there were 20,000, maybe more, that were saved before those films completely wore out based on facts that were coming in to us. Now, there are going to be a lot of people that were saved from the witness of those 30,000, right? There's going to be people in heaven that are going to come up to Calvary, Phoenix, and they're going to say, thank you. And we're going to go, for what? For sharing Jesus with me. And I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to heaven because I want to see those people there. Amen? How do you prepare for the judgment seat of Christ? Well, it's by making Jesus the Lord of your life, by giving Jesus first place in your life thinking of eternal things, doing eternal things. I have to also think, instead of judging the people around you, realize that, no, someday you're going to stand before the Bema seat, and that's what matters. Focus on your race, not somebody else's. When you're running, it's hard to be the critic of other people, right? Keep your eye on your race. I have a friend that I've been talking to this about And he keeps getting sidetracked by other people's races. He's getting bitter by what other people are doing. And and I've exhorted him, you know, stop. Just keep your eye on your race. Stay in your lane. And he keeps looking and drifting and stumbling. And man, he just sent me the other day a text. And it was like he was right back to where he was before. Just embittered. And actually trying to suck me into it. He was like pushing buttons. And I'm thinking, no, I'm staying in my lane. I had to keep my eye on my race, on what Jesus called me to do as a dad, as a grandpa, as a pastor, as you know, husband. I've got nothing in those orders. 
as a husband. You understand what I'm saying? Keep your eye on your lane. It's all about running to Jesus, getting to the finish line, crossing the line, standing before the bema. And I want to hear like you want to hear, good job, faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear those words from you. And you're equipping us to do that. We're learning, I mean, just this. For some of us, it's the first time we've ever heard anything like this. We want to make you number one in our lives. We want to make sure that other things are secondary compared to running our race and running it to win and at the end of our race receiving eternal reward. To that end, we really need the power and help of your Holy Spirit. We can't run the race without him. Protect us, Lord, from the diversions that come along, from the sin that can tangle us up and and can trip us up. Help us to run without the baggage that is so easy to carry and not look back, not look back at the past, not to live in shame, but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we want to be able to say at the end of our race that we fought the good fight, we finished the race, and there's someday going to be a crown of glory for us. In Jesus' name we ask, and everybody said, amen.
are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.